I feel like with, for better or worse, my experience with evolution is I'm only evolving in my ability to try to get to the same place. Like you have this glimpse of this euphoric truth about existence, about life, about this thing, and that you're trying desperately to get to it, to get a closer look, a longer look, to be able to touch it, to hold it, to, to summit, summon it up on, on, on demand. And I'm always just trying to get to that place. And maybe 0.01% of the time I do, but I think that the evolution is trying to get better at getting there, not to get to a different place, but get to the only place that's worth getting to, at least for me. I'm Elia Einhorn. Welcome to the Talkhouse Music Podcast. Here at the Talkhouse, we pair notable musicians for unmoderated conversation and release a new talk each week. Regular listeners will have caught episodes like Thundercat and Kamasi Washington in conversation during Pitchfork Music Festival, or Questlove chatting with Slater Kinney and Portlandia's Carrie Brownstein. Check out these and all of our past episodes and subscribe to get new ones on Stitcher or iTunes. Today's episode pairs two intelligent, party-loving, arty outsiders who have had huge success in the pop realm, Dan Deacon and Andrew W.K. If you can believe it, both pieces of music that began this podcast were by Andrew W.K. Now, check out a couple of different sounds from Dan Deacon. It's hard to believe those are the same artists, right? That's the magic of Dan Deacon and Andrew W.K. Deacon grew up in suburban Long Island, New York and attended the Conservatory of Music at SUNY Purchase. He studied composition and computer music while playing in experimental rock bands, composing for chamber orchestras, and making sound collages. After school, Deacon moved to Baltimore, where he became a key part of that city's eclectic music scene. He began making dancier records and soon grew to be a super popular performer selling out venues around the world. Deacon's shows are all-out dance parties where he performs on the ground with the audience around him going nuts. In recent years, he's begun writing new music for orchestras and also toured with Miley Cyrus, The Flaming Lips, and Arcade Fire. His most recent album was 2015's Gliss Riffer. Andrew W.K. grew up in Michigan playing classical and jazz piano. Moving to Detroit, he rocked out in a number of under-the-radar metal and punk bands. But at the turn of the millennium, WK was offered a major label contract. 2001 saw the release of his hit album, I Get Wet, and the massive single Party Hard, along with titles like It's Time to Party and Party Till You Puke, cemented him as king of the party. In the following years, WK diversified his focus and output, 
releasing not only more hard rock, but also solo classical piano albums, becoming a popular motivational speaker, collaborating with experimental music ensembles, and hosting radio and TV shows. The man's joie de vivre, relentless charisma, and fantastic philosophy of partying whatever it is you do are singular and irrepressible. Here then are Dan Deacon and Andrew W.K. in conversation. As Andrew would say, party this podcast. I remember the first time we ever met, we were at Bowery Ballroom. And I was feeling pretty like oh, right. disenfranchised yeah. with, uh, I'd never, I've, you know, we both came up in like the, like the weirdo pseudo noise scene. And I was really just like confused about so many people hearing my music and I was excited by it. But a lot of it felt like, uh, I, I want to say synthetic because so much of it, I'd never been in a world of press before. And I was very confused by media and everything seemed fashion-based. And I remember we did this joint interview and I was like, at, like asking you, like, how do you feel about so many people hearing your music that might not understand its context? And you said something that really resonated with me was like, you're just, you want as many people to hear your music as possible. And if they take something away from it, that's great. And if, if not, at least they had an opportunity to. And that really like helped me understand a large group of people ingesting media. And because I feel like so many people don't hear enough media. They hear what like, and I feel like a lot of people only like quote unquote mainstream ideas because that's all they're exposed to. Like it's a privilege to have an exposure to a wide array of ideas and a wide array of musics. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like a lot of musicians sometimes forget that. And I think I had forgotten that. And you saying like, I'm just psyched that so many people are listening to my music and whether or not it sticks with them. I'm just glad that they got a chance to hear it. And because that's all that you ever, when you're, when you're just starting out, that's, you don't think about it in those terms, but that is what you want. Like you're going to a house show and you might not, you might not have any idea if even the bands you're playing with know what you sound like or are going to like it, but you're just happy to play it in front of people. Do you know what I mean? I certainly relate to that. I also relate to the other side. I've had plenty of uh, interaction with folks that I respect a great deal who truly do what they do for themselves and and do seem deeply unconcerned and maybe on the extreme even um, opposed to large exposure or it's just so uninteresting to them that they don't make any effort to reach for that. And that has its own place as well. I think for me, it was always just an aesthetic quality. I liked size. You know, I try to make things big because... There was a certain kind of grandeur aesthetically that comes from that sort of a cinematic experience. But it also is intense because it's more risky and there's other things involved. It doesn't mean it's better. It's just a different approach. With that in mind, oh, you, made me, you made me think of, uh, you said how it's a great privilege to be able to be exposed to so much. And that is something that uh, is a great point. And I try to keep in mind uh, a lot that there are folks out there who would be thrilled to find out about all kinds of things. And for whatever reason, they haven't had the opportunity to. Now, of course, you could say, well, it's each person's responsibility to go out in the world and seek things out. But if you don't even know that they can be sought out, that's a great disadvantage. So to have exactly 
you know, a friend play you something or to find yourself in a sh- uh, at a venue where a band you never heard of happens to be playing or just to be exposed to things, however you may be exposed to them. It, it, it's not always because of your own efforts. There can be all kinds of other factors. And, and, and as you're saying, that's why it is a privilege. It, it's, it involves good luck. It involves good fortune. It, yes, it involves a kind of open-mindedness and, a, and an effort on the part of the listener or the uh, explorer. But I think, you know, it's so easy to, to go out and say, oh, this person, you know, is stupid because they don't know about this thing. But that's not necessarily their fault. And it can certainly be uh, part of our deal, part of our end of the bargain to help to, uh, to initiate people into all kinds of things or whatever we have access to to share it. Absolutely. Because it can be very, very easy to hoard it and very easy to, I mean, I'm, I, I felt this way a lot and still struggle with it, to really think that you're better because you know about this thing that other people don't know about. And you, deep down inside, we realize that's just absurd. Yeah, I think the older you get, shallow. the more that... I remember being in high school when, like, quote-unquote popular kids would start getting into, like, music that I was into prior to that, and, like, it's stinging and being... I felt like something was being taken away from me. Like, a part of my identity was being absorbed by, like, the cultural Borg. And uh, it was a bummer, but... That's just, I don't, you know, the older I got, the more I was like, esotericism is basically like elitism. And if you're trying to like keep an idea secret, that's fucked up. Especially like a musical idea or just, I don't know. There's certain things that people like other people liking. And then there's certain things that people wish that only they and their select few friends liked. But I just have a hard time getting down with that. Especially like knowing that at some point... I didn't know about it, and the whole reason I liked exactly. it is because it made about. me feel good about knowing about it. Was it the knowledge that I was a select few in knowing about it? I hope not, but I'm sure some of it was, being like, oh, I'm so glad. I love this band. They might be giants, but they're not on the radio, and no one knows. But they're still, like, a massively popular band that's selling, like, at the time, probably, like, a couple of thousand tickets in every city. But they weren't, like, Green Day or The Offspring or something like that. And the fact that this, the music resonated was the most important thing. I mean, the rest is sort of like icing on the cake. If it, there is, a, I think, again, I think it's sort of an aesthetic aspect. The secrecy, the obscurity, those things, they do add a dimension to it. But if the song, you didn't like something very visceral about the music, like Particle Man, you wouldn't be able to uh, hold on to it for any significant amount of time. Totally. I often think, like, where would I be in my life if, like, my friend James's brother didn't play us Mr. Bungle? And I kind of think, like, Mr. Bungle is, like, the gateway band for, like, suburban weirdos that would have otherwise just probably, like, the weirdest band we would have gotten into would have been, like, Pink Floyd in college or something like that. It's exactly the way you put it, though, is so perfect in that there was a time when we didn't know about whatever we now know about and you can't you can't deny that no one was born knowing all these things and again there'll be plenty of people that are exposed to all sorts of things that don't like it and it, it might as well have never heard it it just passes right through them and makes no impact at all but uh you know to bring a person into the light is a, is is sort of a duty i think it's part of the human path and i don't really think anyone can be a full human if they 
sort of with malevolence try to keep others from that. It's sadistic. Yeah, there's no reason to make music a secret society. I mean, there's value. There's the, the idea of the profane, right? Like that, that not only would they not, people, certain people not understand this, that they would abuse it, that they would waste it, that they would somehow pollute the purity of these ideas. And I understand that impulse or that you have to attain a certain level of advancement, but it seems like that's a, a natural thing, that it just won't appeal to you unless you're ready to receive it, whatever it is. You know, it's like a certain kind of food. If you taste a certain kind of food at age seven, you might think it's disgusting, and then 10 years later, you really appreciate it, and then 10 years down the road, you're into kinds of cuisine that literally tastes like human feces. <laughs> or even human feces itself, if you get advanced enough or debauched enough. Yeah, that's why I've got some here ready to try. That's why we're doing this, right? We're, this is a... Never mind, that, that joke took a dark turn. You leave something for that rainy day. That's how I thought about those things, because there's sometimes was pressure, I think, uh, in these real intense scenes um, where you have these uh, very challenging and provocative and confrontational modes of, of living, really, like these lifestyles that really push the envelope in every way, right down to things like eating vomit. But you can always set that aside for when you're 90 years old and you feel like you've done it all. That's true. I kind of feel like I, as I get older, I'm drifting more towards subtlety. And less, I mean, and and maybe that's just like a common trend in life is that it's easier to find, uh, or it's more rewarding to find nuance and detail. And when you're young, it's broad strokes, bright colors, um, things that are very in bold and italics because you're discovering. And discovery is, you know, I guess that's what Remaining youthful is, is to always be able to discover something, even in like, you know, you you can watch a film again and again and again, and the first time you watch Blue Velvet, it's going to probably blow your mind um, in a very different way than like your sixth viewing. But if you're always still watching it, trying to see something new, I think you're going to continue to enjoy it. And I don't know, I, I keep trying to think that way, going back and thinking like, why did I like this? Why is the stuff that resonates with me still resonating? Why are things that I used to not really enjoy resonating with me? Like, I'm not really, like, I'm not a virtuosic musician by any means. I don't play any instrument very well. I think I'm decent at software. But uh, lately I've been very into virtuosic playing, and that's something that, and very, like, uh, and people who show their virtuosity. When, like, 10 years ago, that, that kind of bothered me. Um, I don't know why, but it, it to me it was like a an unnecessary sh showing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example. I think we both come from a world of like, we like having a good time and we like bringing a good time to people. And for me, shows were very much about like, the music was what was helping the party be fueled or the show be fueled rather. But uh, the show itself was the experience. The overall macro structure was important. So like microstructure flourishes were very, I think I thought they were cool, but then, I really just like zooming out. Like, I love that. Uh, and now, you know, if, if, you, if I'm trying to relate to something, you ever see Powers of Ten? That, like, old film where it, like, zooms out of oh, park yeah. and then zooms into the cell? Like, yeah, I feel great. like 10 years ago, I was much more into the uh, n uh, positive exponents. Now I'm much more into the, the, the negative zooming in of, on the m molecular level. Do you think in a way, as it's often been said in classical observation, that it is all the same thing that the details the same as the broad strokes and the 
super zoomed out is the same as the super zoomed in and in terms of getting to the essential core of the experience or do you think that they are offering different flavors i i think i think it's both i think you know when you when you think about it like i probably still like the same things but i'm just liking them in a shifted context like i'm still very obsessed with color and pattern but i just think the colors and patterns that i've liked are different than the ones I probably liked 10 years ago. And I think that's important. I think it's important to always try to keep changing what you like, but in a natural progression. Like when I was 10, I didn't like the same shit as when I was zero. And I, you know, when I was 20, I very much liked different stuff from when I was 10. So now that I'm, you know, 34, I'm glad that I like different things than when I was 24. I'd probably feel pretty weird if I was still like into the same thing and trying to make the same kind of thing. I think it's important to always try to evolve, but like 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 you just said, like is it the same thing or is it you know something different? Like evolution is pretty much, if you think about it, it's the same thing, but just changing in iterations. Like if you were 12 years old today, growing up right now, seeing the emerging police state, becoming aware of like if you're if, if me, if I was 12 year old, you know, fat little white me in suburban Long Island, growing up just starting to get into like punk and stuff, I think it would be impossible for me to not latch on to the growing social justice movement. And I think I would get into music. I don't know if I would get into like third wave ska. You know what I mean? I think it would be hard for me to get into that because the whole world has changed. And I'd have to get into something that would reflect where the world is and where the state of quote unquote punk or the underground is. And I just keep thinking about how different it was in the early 2000s, and I like thinking that it's better now. I like thinking that, like, a kid who's 12 12 years old now, when they're 24, is going to be making such radical, radical art and radical ideas. And I like knowing that I'll live through that and seeing such a shift in what punk is. And I use punk in, like, the very, very large sense of just, like, someone who's not trying to become an accountant. (laughs) Um, No diss to accountants. But uh, do you know what I'm, you know what I mean? Just how much and how rapidly society is shifting. Sometimes I see that as fearful, but at other times I just see it as uh, just the way things are. And there are no, there's no good or bad in evolution. It's just a change. And I just want to never fear the future. I, I feel like we're always conditioned to fear. The future. And I feel like the more we can try to envision a future that we don't fear, we have to be realistic about creating situations that make it so. It's much easier to live in a future, in a mindset where the future is horrifying, because that justifies all the horrifying things that are setting out the, the actions. If you start playing a game and you're like, oh, I suck at this game, I'm going to lose, you're probably going to lose. But if you start setting out and you're like, well, I really want to ensure that these things don't happen, I'd really love for there to be a utopian vision of society where justice is real for everybody and there's a sense of equality that's been unforeseen on this planet. If you think that way, you have to start being like, well, how the fuck am I going to do that? The same way where if I just sit in my house every day, I'm like, well, I wish I wasn't overweight. Uh, It's very different from when I'm like, well, if I wished I wasn't overweight, I have to exercise today. And so if you think negatively about the future, you don't have to do anything. The negative future is emerging if you do nothing. The positive future emerges if you put forth positive actions that have impact on that future. Does that make any sense?
and I definitely relate most most of all uh, to this idea that no matter what, no matter how hopeless it may feel, no matter how overwhelming it may feel, no matter how uh, far away you or any one person might feel from uh, having the ability to make an impact, there can still be this incredible thoughtfulness and awareness and a rigorous effort to stay in all of it, to, to, to think about everything and, and to not always have an answer or an opinion or a stance or a belief, to not work from conclusions, but to work towards conclusions. Because as you said, there's so much information and the way my, a lot of information, it seems, is presented to us is that we have to make a determination about that information immediately and then take that determination and apply it to the rest of our day. But we don't have to, but uh, we can still stay incredibly engaged. And I, I think there's sometimes for me, it's felt like it has to be either or. Either you tune it all out or you feel like you have to do everything and devote your entire life to this um, type of, uh, I guess, you know, activist uh, pursuit. But you can actually engage and do everything in a way without having to have all the answers all the time. Because like you said, kind of going back to what we talked about in the beginning, there was a time when we didn't know anything uh, or we knew very little. And we grew into that through observing, through thinking, through not so much making judgments, but from listening. And I've noticed that there's a lot more that can be gained personally for me that I can contribute a lot better if I listen more than I declare so it's okay to not know, you know, and confusion, which can be very distressing, um, is actually a, a great truth. Uh, I, that, uh, I saw who had it up on, uh, on the computer the other day, uh, Reggie Watts said, uh, without truth, there's confusion, which is the essence of truth. And there's something, I guess, kind of even going back to what we're talking about, you know, chasing towards this truth, wanting to know what is at the heart of all things, you know, even the very essence of being alive. But we might not get that. And we have to be okay with that and not have that defeat us, but rather to stay engaged, even if we don't ever get there. Even if we, like you're saying, if we don't even get to a utopia, that doesn't mean we don't keep those kinds of ideals and try to work towards them. Yeah, I think if, if we think about life as math, you know, I don't, I don't think mathematicians are like, oh, I really hope we like find all of math by the time I die. <laughs> uh, you know, like, but I feel like, I, I don't, I, I'll never live in a, in a time without war or a time uh, with inequality. I, I know that. And while that's a, a bummer thought, I'd like to think that if it's a, a, a 10,000 mile journey while dragging, you know, two tons of boulders that I helped drag it six inches along. And I think that's all that we can hope for. Yeah, well said. I actually saw you mention uh, quite recently that you play tuba in trombone. <laughs> I do, yes. And it, did you, is that are those your primary instruments beyond um, electronic instruments or co composition? No, I don't. I've never tools? really composed on them 
but I that's what got me into music. I was in the fourth grade band, and I, I guess everyone wrote down, like, you had to write down your two choices for what instruments you wanted to play, and uh, everyone wrote saxophone and nothing else, or trumpet. And uh, I wrote saxophone, then as my backup instrument, trombone. And of course, no one else wrote trombone, so I was like, oh, trombone it is! And uh, trombone's hard. I yeah, I, I had a, I had no idea what like intonation or pitch was, but uh, I liked it. I'm really glad I did it. It was a really weird instrument. And then um, in the ninth grade, I went. I was in a. I, I, yeah, I guess it was the ninth. Maybe it was the eighth grade. But I went to a school that was seven through twelve in one building, and the seniors were. All the tuba players were seniors, and they were like, well, we need uh, we need someone to play tuba, and, you know, you're the fat kid, so it seems like you're going to fit the role just perfect. So I switched from trombone to tuba, and kind of fucked me up because I didn't really know anything about, like, the fingering. It was very different from the mechanics of the trombone. and But I really liked being in bands, right. and I liked music, and uh, but that's when I got into MIDI. I found, like, a computer program on my my dad bought a used computer to do like data entry he he was an exterminator and uh needed to like keep track of his like customer stuff and in that also had the used computer robot had this like midi software on it and i just fell in love with it and i kept trying to like write stuff on trombone and then put it into there but i just wasn't a strong enough player anymore and the tuba i was just i could play like bulls on parade but that was about it Tuba is an interesting instrument. Trombone is so great because you can slide. You can do that glissando, portamento. Yeah, I'm surprised that more um, more instruments didn't have like like there was for. I think there's a picture of a. I think Armstrong played slide trumpet on a couple of tracks, but I think it was mainly just kept as a novelty instrument. But and I'm sure like the, I've seen that. Yeah, they had a tiny tiny trombone. Yeah, yeah. I th- I bet like just like the slide difference wasn't as expressive because of like the length of the slide and everything. But uh, yeah, I really liked it for that reason. And then when I got into writing like weird experimental music, trombone and cello were always really fun to write with because of how expressive they can be and like just getting those, you know, those very easy to get microtonal and like non, uh, you know, 12-tone scale notes. I wanted to ask you in your, your, your ventures, you've been very fortunate from my perspective to be able to participate in quite a vast array of... I don't know what you'd call it, sort of scenes within the music world, um, even going beyond music into what people would call the art world. Um, but also what's really exciting is you've, in my opinion, is that you've gotten to participate in contemporary classical um, modern composer worlds. What has that been like and how did that begin? Uh, you're definitely right that I've been fortunate to do it. It always blows my mind that uh, anyone wants to, you know, listen to my music besides me who made it just to kill time. So whenever anyone's like, oh, you do this in our museum or with our orchestra, and they don't talk like that, but uh, it's kind of... <laughs> but anyway... Uh, uh, it wasn't very flattering. like, oh, hey, uh, we're very intelligent people and you're talking uh, in a voice that would be used for a cartoon character. Um <laughs> And but but my impression of me is me just like spitting and just like eating my hand. Um, so I, well, that's what I went to school for, and I never really thought I'd be making like uh, pop music that you dance to, um, because that was kind of like what I was doing as like a hobby, and it was fun to throw parties and stuff. 
But in school, I was always trying to write like, I mean, what I was majoring in was uh, contemporary composition, and I started focusing on like electroacoustic music. And then after school, I was like, I don't know, this just seems like, doesn't seem like there's a way to make any money writing a piece for 45 cellos. Uh, don't know any cellists, and uh, can't even pay my rent, so I don't know if I can pay 45 cellists or get a performance space. And then I just started touring my, like, pop music set. And that started taking off, and I was living really, uh, I guess, punk at the time, like, in, like, a shared warehouse space, and we ran Food Not Bombs. And so I was eating predominantly dumpstered food, and I was just trying to live as cheaply as possible. So, like, doing these, like, DIY house party tours were, like, both really fun and rewarding, and, like, I kept writing music specifically for those. So I kind of drifted out of writing quote-unquote art music or orchestral or chamber music. And then um, and then with, with the success of my first record, I was like, wow, I can start adding these elements into this music now that there's, like, an audience and there's I'm actually getting paid to play shows and I can, like, record a record with production. And so I started talking more about that. And I guess at some point I got introduced to So Percussion, uh, the percussion quartet that are insane try not to use that word, that are like amazing uh, masters of their craft. And they really championed me for a while and they like uh, commissioned me to write several pieces for them and then also, like I'd been out of the game for a while and writing music isn't really like riding a bike. You you forget the mechanics of it. And, you know, I used to do everything by hand and write all my sheet music by hand and I had really forgotten how to fall back into the groove and I tried relearning software and they were very, very not even just accommodating, but, like, it was almost like a mentorship where they, like, they, like, believed in my music enough to try to help me get it out of my head so that they could play it. And I owe them a great wow. a great deal for that. And then there was another person, uh, uh, Edwin Atwater, who was with the uh, Kitchener Orchestra in Kitchener-Waterloo, Canada. And he yeah. had a series called Intersections. And if he still does it, I think you would really be amazing for it. And he was the first person that uh, hooked me up with an orchestra and was like, we'd love for you to arrange uh, your music for orchestra. And I was like, well, I'd really love to write a new piece. I have had these pieces sitting around for a while. And again, it was the same thing rather than like, because I was very self-conscious about it, being like, ah, I used to know this and now I don't. And he was very uh, mentoring and helping me bring it to life and being like, well, what about this? I think this would be better. And I don't think the trumpets can just blast high B flat for 25 minutes. I think maybe uh, staggering this part because <laughs> I was writing as if I was writing for a machine because uh, that's how I've been writing for six years at that point. So he, both of them, So Percussion and Edwin were very nurturing in that regard. And then uh, the Aesthetic Music Festival Again, through so got behind me, and then I don't know. Every they every opportunity has sort of fractaled fractaled off into other opportunities, and every time I work in one of those environments, and it informs it, all my other practices. Like just seeing like how an, or, an orchestra works makes me think about mixing uh, electronics differently because you can't mix an orchestra the way you can a rock record, where you can just compress everything and have things duck in and out to create like the artificial sense of dynamics. Like, if you just have the brass section blasting out, you're not going to hear, like, the more quieter voices that have 
less of a dynamic range. So you have to think with more subtlety and nuance. And back then, I was just writing everything level 10, hard, limited, compressed the shit out of it. And so I kind of feel like that changed the way I thought. Do you mind if I ask you a question? I really love how you do so many different versions of your show, like with a gigantic band, with just you, sometimes just solo piano. Um, I, I love that because I, I find like with myself, I get kind of like not tired of playing the same way, but excited to play it in a new way. And I think, you know what I mean? Like I love playing my show. If, if people were to be like, yeah, I don't know, because everyone talks like this in my impersonations of random people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You can only do uh, solo sets for the rest of your life. I'd be like, well, that's great. If they're like, you can only play with two drummers, uh, you can never play solo again. I'd probably be like, that's a really odd restriction. I don't know how you're going to impose that, but sounds good to me. Um, But it's just fun to switch it up. It's fun to, and I think maybe that's why bands change what instruments they play sometimes. Like all of a sudden a band will be like, we play all synths now. But I've always liked how throughout your career, you've your tours are different lineups and different... Uh, levels of performers each time. And I don't Thank know. Thank you. I was wondering what, what inspires you to do that? That's a very good question um, in that I don't necessarily have a, a particular answer. I started as a solo performer out of necessity. Same here. Because I didn't have anyone to play with. Um, I desperately wanted a band, but I wanted to play shows even more. So I figured maybe I would meet people to be in the band by playing shows and just uh there wasn't a lot of thought put into those types of decisions um throughout sometimes i think maybe for the worst sometimes i think maybe i should have been more strict or now should be more strict but there tends to be sort of a a pull to do certain things that i find very hard to resist and i don't know if it's good i mean i see other people not not doing these things and sometimes they seem like they've had a lot of success by um, being more restrictive or more consistent in certain ways. But then again, you can't really compare yourself too much um, to what other people do. I don't know. Uh, I'm always trying to just get, you know, you were talking about evolution before. I feel like with, for better or worse, my experience with evolution is I'm only evolving in my ability to try to get to the same place. Like you have this glimpse of this euphoric truth about existence, about life, about this thing, and that you're trying desperately to get to it, to get a closer look, a longer look, to be able to touch it, to hold it, to, to summit, summon it up on, on, on demand. And I'm always just trying to get to that place. And maybe 0.01% of the time I do, but I think that the evolution is trying to get better at getting there, not to get to a different place, but get to the only place that's worth getting to, at least for me. Um, but I think for most people, you're just trying to get to the core of the experience. And that's what maybe you evolve at, at different paths that try to get there, or, or maybe you try to get away from it. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. And that can be an interesting regression or something, but... I still feel this real uh, urgent, almost um, kind of uh, emergency that I have to get to this place. And what am I doing? I, I, I you know, time is running out. Um, but it felt like that twenty years ago too. That 
I've got to get to that feeling and um, and stay there. Um, but you, you know, I haven't even arrived there yet, so I'm still clawing my way towards it. And I think, in a way, it's sort of like a carrot dangling in front of a rabbit, in that it might not be a reachable place, and it might be designed for that uh, very reason. I mean, why, for example, why is the fact of the matter, for instance, uh, for example, about life, why is that so elusive? Why are the most primary truths so removed and so obscure why wouldn't that just be the most obvious thing out of all of our experiences you know going through day-to-day life we know that we're breathing we know that we require water we have these sort of vague understandings of where we are in some sense but the most fundamental thing of what is life is completely removed now some people say they have the answer to that but for me, and I think for a lot of folks, it seems like the the attempt to get to, to that place is kind of the place itself. I guess, as they say, the journey is the destination. So playing different kinds of shows, they're just, again, very humble attempts to maybe this time, this I'll get there. Hi, I'm Elia Einhorn, and you've been listening to Dan Deacon and Andrew W.K. on the TalkHouse Music Podcast. Subscribe on Stitcher or iTunes for upcoming TalkHouse Music and TalkHouse Film episodes. Today's episode was mixed by Mark Yoshizumi. Never stop partying. not as intense as eating vomit, but it is something I've been saving for uh, a spiritual rainy day. Yeah.